We're in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 52, down to the rest of the chapter today. It is the, is the second part of Jesus' bread of life discourse that he uh, preached the day after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 men. We always call it the feeding of the 5,000, but that understates it because the Bible says there were 5,000 men there, which means with women and little ones, it's probably closer to 15, maybe even as many as 20,000 people. This is the very next day, and through the, through the night, uh, after that miracle, the crowd has followed Jesus. He's crossed the, the Sea of Galilee, in his specific case, in part on foot with the miracle of walking on water. But the crowd has followed him back and forth, and one of the major settlements on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. And we come to the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, it's certainly the case that 15 to 20,000 people didn't follow him into that synagogue. It was a good-sized building, not that big, but several hundred of those that were still kind of hanging on, having benefited, witnessed and benefited from his miracle the day before. So Jesus, as was often the case in the synagogues, itinerant teachers, itinerant rabbis were permitted to speak and Jesus was permitted to address the crowd in the synagogue that day. And he offered what John 6 captures in its latter part there in what we have come to call the bread of life sermon or the bread of life discourse. Jesus has been comparing himself to the manna. His Hebrew audience would have known all about that manna. First introduced in the book of Exodus, the, the bread that was, that was created by God fresh every morning during 40 years of wandering in the wilderness between exiting Egypt and occupying the promised land. And we Talked about that some last week. I reviewed it this week on the Beyond the Notes podcast. And Jesus has identified himself with that manna, with his statement, I am the bread of life. And that would have brought forth a gasp from this, this Jewish crowd as Jesus is claiming to be the the, the, the deified representation, not just the bread that the Lord provided, but the Lord who provided the bread. And then we looked at, last week we stopped in verse 51. And in verse 51, Jesus makes a, a startling claim. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so he pivots away now from a conversation about manna into a, a somewhat shocking metaphor as he is describing his sacrifice on the cross and the need to appropriate and internalize that sacrifice, what the Jews thought they heard him describing was literal cannibalism. Roman numeral one on your outline, and I'll be reading the passage as we go through it this morning. Roman numeral one on your outline, their puzzlement, the puzzlement, verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves his comment that I am the bread of eternal, I am the bread of life, and whoever eats this will live forever. The, 
The bread that I will give is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They were repulsed by the very idea. And of, I put it in your notes like this, of all the people groups in the world, the Jews would perhaps be the most horrified by the idea of eating human flesh and drinking blood of any sort. The Old Testament makes several references to acts of cannibalism, and in all cases, it's seen as a, as a horrific, repugnant act. And as for the consuming of blood, the law speaks quite explicitly to that in various places. I've chosen, this is not in your outline, but if you'd like to write it down, this is Leviticus chapter 17. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of your Old Testament, chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Now he's talking there about the Old Testament sacrificial system that looks forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Don't mess with blood. It means too much. That's what he is in effect saying. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. So they're puzzled. Jesus has certainly gotten their attention. Roman numeral two on your outline, the promises. Jesus continues to explain verses 53 through 59. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The promises. Now we have to... Sometimes in a, in, a, in, a, in a conversation or in a communication or even in a message, a sermon, sometimes you have, to, you have to sort of pick up and set aside what is not being said so you can get to what is being said. Let me tell you what is not going on here. If you are a member of, of this church, if you are a, 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 a McGregorite, you know that we, we participate from time to time in the Lord's Supper. This is not the Lord's institution of the Lord's Supper. Remember, we were told on the, at, at the time of year is Passover time. Our, our study of the 
feeding of the 5,000 miracle early in John 6, the text tells us it's at the Passover time of year in the spring. It's about a year before the crucifixion event. It's about a year left in Jesus' earthly ministry, and he's going to institute the Lord's Supper on the Thursday night before he goes to the cross on Friday. This is not reference to the Lord's Supper. For our, for our uh, Roman Catholic friends, often this passage is used as textual support for the ideas in the Roman Catholic Mass. It isn't. Um, the, the Roman Catholics have exactly the same problem the Jews do here. The Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, I know that's a big word, change, trans, from one substance to another, transubstantiation teaches that the little piece of bread actually becomes the flesh of Jesus Christ, that it changes in substance. And the, the grape juice or wine or whatever it is actually changes in substance into the blood of Christ in the Catholic Mass, which must be consumed for the forgiveness of sin. Aside from the works salvation ramifications of that, the actual change in the elements requires of our friends that they believe something that is not true. Now we walk by faith and not by sight, praise God. But we do not walk by faith in denial of plain reality. We don't have to take a glass of something or a sip of something and say, I have to believe this is actual blood, though it still tastes awfully grapey. <laughs> this is not the institution of the Lord's Supper. This is not affirmation of the ongoing Mass. This is the one time appropriation of the death of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sinners. The verbs in verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, are verbs that are constructed in such a way in the original, they are one time acts. That forms the foundation for the whole paragraph. That we partake one time. This chapter is talking about the complete personal internalization and appropriating of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's no need for an ongoing sacrifice and there's no need for an ongoing internalization of that sacrifice. We're saved once if we're saved when we turn from our sin and trust Jesus Christ for our salvation. That's what he's talking about. The internalization and appropriation of his sacrifice. And in light of that, he makes three promises here. Three promises for those who come to faith in Christ, who take into themselves the benefit of those sacrifices. Letter A, eternal life. Verses 53 and the first part of 54. Um, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. But whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood 
that is whoever internalizes my sacrifice has eternal life. If you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, your eternity in heaven can be as secure today as anyone's has ever been if you will turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ by faith. Believing friend, I uh, would remind you that your salvation is on the basis of what Christ has done for you, not on the basis of how you're doing. Uh, Our salvation transforms us. We're changed from one thing to another when we come to faith in Christ. And, And the believer desires to please the Lord and live for Jesus, but the believer also stumbles. My believing friend, on the worst day of the worst stumble you ever had, if you have come to Jesus, you belong to Jesus. And you are kept by his grace, not your works. And he has promised eternal life to all who have come to him. Second promise, physical resurrection. The end of verse 54. You have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there's a, there's a lot of, of doctrine baked into that statement. He's promised it several times already in this message. It's the most recurring promise in the Bread of Life discourse is that we will, we will be physically resurrected one day. If today, my Christian friend, if today, follower of Jesus Christ, if today you pass away, the day is young, I'm not prophesying anything. I'm not hoping anything. But you and I as believers can turn our face into the reality. If I drive home by my usual route this afternoon, I'm getting up on I-75. Probably somebody's going to lose their life on I-75 in Florida today. I imagine it happens most days. I'll be with Jesus. The moment I am absent from my body, I will be present with the Lord. Christian friend, that's true for you as well. But until the resurrection at the last days, I will be with Jesus, but I will, I will, be, with, I will be me. I will have my identity. I will be recognizable to him and to others in, he, in, in heaven with him, in sort of the, the transitional heaven, One day, he's going to unveil the permanent heaven. All these things are in the last days. And at the end, I will receive a resurrection, permanent, eternal, physical body. We do not inhabit heaven as a bunch of friendly ghosts, like Casper. We do not look like cabbage patch kids strumming harps and floating about on clouds. Heaven is a bustling, industrious city, massive, inhabited by living people who live forever. I was with my grandson, Levi, at the Magic Kingdom up in Orlando yesterday, and Levi, being nearly two, likes to drive the race cars in Tomorrowland. They have a height check for guys that can do that. It's about that tall, and he's about this tall. Here's what I discovered about the race cars at Tomorrowland as a granddad. They are not designed for people Levi's height. Further, they are not designed for people Russell's height. (laughs) Assuredly. And today, from the 
act of climbing in, fitting in, and disentangling myself, my knees are punishing me just a little. I look forward to having a pair that won't. You know, some of y'all have already had knee replacement. I haven't had, I hadn't got any man-made replacements, but I look forward to a God-made set of replacement knees, elbows, and the whole package. I'm gonna live forever physically, and so are you. By the way, if you don't come to faith in Christ, you're also gonna live forever physically in a body that can be terribly hurt but not harmed. That's how you can burn forever in hell. Everybody gets a resurrection body. You're gonna live forever. If you've come to faith in Christ, you're gonna live forever in heaven. His promises, eternal life and resurrection and relationship with our creator. Verse 56 into 57. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Oh, to be known by my creator in a close and intimate relationship, to be able to speak to him and know that he hears, to be able to hear from him where he has spoken to know him, those are the precious promises. Well, when his disciples heard it, they grumbled. Now in verse 60, that reference to disciples is not the 12. He's going to make a clear distinction between this this group of casual followers. Well, if you look, look down at verse 66, his disciples, and but then in verse 67, the 12. So he's not talking about the 12. The word disciples can just mean student or follower of, of any level. Sometimes it means the 12. Context makes it clear. This is the, the crowd in the Capernaum synagogue, again, many of whom are hangers-on from the day, the miracle of the day before. I've used for Roman numeral three, I've used the prism. The prism, not the prison with an N, but the prism with an M. You know how a prism works? Have you ever seen one? If you take a, a prism, usually it's, 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 a, it's a clear piece of glass, triangular in shape, and you shine a bright light that looks like a white light into a prism, and out of the other side of the prism comes different streams of colored light. The prism splits that beam of light into the various constituent parts that were there. You couldn't see them when they were all together. It just looked like one stream. But once you put it through the prism, you go, okay, well in there, I had this, and I had this. I had red light, I had blue light, I had yellow light, I had all of those things in that stream. Well, the bread of life discourse is a prism. It's a prism. And it's going to split that synagogue crowd. As a prism takes, uh, put it in your notes, as a prism takes a single beam of light and splits it into the different colors that are contained within it. So Jesus' hard message, the bread of life is a hard message, divides the hearers into at least three groups. The first group we meet is the transient false disciples, letter A. These are people who who hopped on the bandwagon the day before. So Jesus is gonna feed us without costing us anything. It's an amazing thing to watch. It's an amazing thing to eat. I'm in for the miraculous free lunch creator. I'm in as long as it goes the way I want it to go. I am willing to check this Jesus thing out until something about Christianity bugs me. How can we identify these transient false 
disciples. Well, there are three characteristics, I think, that emerge in the text. First, they are offended by not submitted to God's truth. Verse 60, 61, 62. But many of his disciples heard this. They said, this is a hard saying. Who, who, who can listen to it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Does this that I've been saying bug you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He's making reference to his ascension, which comes after his resurrection, which comes after his crucifixion, the actual literal sacrifice. In effect, what he's saying is, if you are bugged by what you're hearing regarding your need to own and cast your life upon and trust completely to the point of internalizing it, appropriating it, trusting me and only me as your eternal living sacrifice for salvation. If that bugs you a bit, wait till you, wait till you see the events that are coming. You see, most of the Jews of Jesus' day expected a Messiah that would deliver, mostly would deliver them from Roman domination, that would fix their situational and political dilemma. And when the Savior fails to fix their situational and political stress, they want nothing to do with him because they see him as a situational and political savior. Still way too common in 2021 among those who would claim to be Christians until something in their life doesn't go situationally the way they think it ought to go and then they go, well, if Jesus isn't gonna fix that, what do I want to do with him? This notion of transitional false disciples is sadly not obsolete. They are offended by not submitted to God's truth. Well, I don't like that. Second, they are proud of their efforts, not humbled by their belief. Religion is the stuff that I do to make God like me. And in that sense, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is not a stack of things you do to make God like you. Christianity is falling on your face in humility because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. They were very proud of their efforts, not humbled by their belief. Jesus said it like this, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. Now here, flesh, he doesn't mean himself. He means their fleshly effort, all that hard work you think you're doing to make God like you. It's the words that I have spoken to you, our spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and he knew who it was who would betray him. More about that in a moment. The transient false disciples are proud of their efforts. They're oh so religious. They do the stuff. They live years and years and years doing the stuff, thinking that by the habituation to doing religious stuff, what they've achieved is following Jesus. 
These were willing to do some stuff. In fact, the Jews of Jesus' day were, they perceived themselves to be piling up good works that would surely earn them right eternal standing. And here Jesus says, it's not worth anything. It's no help at all. Well, that's not good because, number three, they desire credit, not grace. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you, and he had told them this in the previous paragraphs. We covered it last Sunday. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Not only are your works no good, your decision to follow me, your trusting me by turning from your sin and exercising faith, you can't even do that on your own. In short, number three on your outline, you desire credit, not grace. You can't have it both ways. Your salvation is either entirely about the glory of God or it is in some measure something you ought to be proud of that you ought to take some credit for. You cannot have it both ways. And here's a hint. You can't take any credit for it. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Glory to God. Well, if I want credit, I mean, at least a little. I've been working so hard. The idea that I'm not going to get any credit is about as offensive as it gets. Jesus must not have been very good at, at growing a great church because he told them the truth and look what happened. <clears throat> After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. In fact, we told you at the beginning of John 6. John 6 is a, is a point in the popularity of Jesus. He draws larger and larger crowds until we get to John 6. And uh, after John 6, the last year of his ministry, there aren't many occasions where he's drawing a large crowd. But he does have some true disciples, let her be. The true disciples see no alternative to Jesus. After this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, verse 67, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? The true followers of Jesus Christ see that there's no alternative. Those of us who've, who've cast our entire lives on Jesus by turning from our sin and trusting him entirely by faith, we're not here to check him out. We're not considering Jesus among the possible philosophical and intellectual worldview. There's no alternative. It's Christ or eternity in hell. And yes, he will demand of me things I would not otherwise have given. And yes, he will lead me to places I would not have otherwise gone. And yes, he will change me in ways I otherwise would not have been changed. But I got no choice. I've got no alternative. My eternity is his. I've also got no cause to complain and nothing to mope about. His 
True disciples also love the word. You have the words of eternal life. I've got nowhere else to go. And they see Jesus Christ as he is. Verse 69, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The deceitful counterfeit disciple is just tagged here at the very end in these last two verses. The transient false disciples are folks that are drifting around doing kind of sort of the Jesus thing while it seems to make sense to them and until they are offended. The deceitful counterfeit disciples absolutely know that they are not Christ followers but they're in it for themselves. It's a completely mercenary relationship. They are merely involved with Jesus as a personal choice for personal benefit as far as it goes. We know from other places in the Gospels, Judas Iscariot was an embezzler, and he had been robbing from Jesus and the disciples the whole time he appeared to be following. And in the end, when the pressure was on, he went for the mercenary choice, as we will see in a few chapters. Follower of Christ, I think of our having no alternative, and it reminds me of a passage in C.S. Lewis. I don't often read to you from up here, but I'm gonna ask you to stay with me for this. I, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm so glad that I was introduced to them when I was very little. And it's not just the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. There are, there are actually seven different books. Volume six of the Chronicles of Narnia is called The Silver Chair. And in it, fairly early in the story, we meet a young lady named Jill. Remember in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the lion, is a picture of Christ, a metaphor, an allegory. Jill is in the, has been in the wilderness and she's terribly thirsty. This is a picture of the living water of coming to faith in Christ. Listen to her experience from Lewis. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound, she's heard a stream. She's thirsty and she's heard a stream was coming from. It grew clearer every moment and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf, a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel 10 times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she'd been turned into stone and her mouth was wide open. She had a very good reason for just on the side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it like the lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew her quite well but didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. If I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. She realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wider, stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It didn't make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. 
Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she may as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to, to do anything to me if I come? Said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. She was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting or as if it were sorry or as if it were angry. It just said it. I, I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all who will ever follow him. And for those who have followed him, we're not looking for alternatives. And if you've never followed him, he invites you with urgency, come and drink. You want to negotiate it on your own terms? You're dealing with the wrong God. But if you want to have eternal life and the Lord you can trust, and a word where he has spoken, come to Jesus.